Thank you, Lord, for the great love with which you have loved us and sent your son, Jesus, to die in our place. And thank you that it is in your word that you have revealed this to us to be true, that we can know you, we can know your son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray as we come to study this book that you would instruct us by your word, that you would sanctify us by your word, which is truth, and that we might uh, grow to become more like Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Welcome. I'm happy to see some of you here who are back from, what is it, the fall now? Back from the spring? Uh, it didn't scare you away. Some of you are new, so welcome. We're happy to have you this morning. And uh, we're studying Colossians this fall. So uh, as we get started with the study, uh, just a couple uh, things to keep in mind. Uh, some of you who have been here before, this is just review for you who are new. Just kind of and I, uh, get a, an overview of what we're doing here uh, on Wednesday mornings. First, the, the format um, normally, I aim for about 45-ish minutes of teaching. Uh, now, those of you who know me know that that 45 minutes is extremely approximate. Um, and uh, I, I, uh, that's what I aim for, but I don't aim well normally. Uh, and so I try for about 45 minutes of teaching, but I get so excited about it, I just keep going. Uh, and you guys are held hostage, so there's nothing you can do about it. On a Sunday morning, if I'm preaching, they can come and pull me off the stage because, you know, they need the, the, the time at the parking lot's full or whatever, and they need to keep going. But this morning, there's no, there's no limitation other than if you guys just get up and leave. Uh, so uh, about 45 minutes-ish of teaching. Uh, I, I'll try, but I, I won't make you any promises that I know I'm going to break. Uh, and then about 75-ish minutes of, of group discussion. Um, give you guys questions every week for you to, to uh, discuss. There's no homework that's necessary. Um, we want you to be able to, to come in and learn from God's Word and have good discussion without having to do uh, a ton of homework on the front end. Uh, but if you want to do homework, I'm more than happy to give you homework to do. Uh, and uh, at the very least, I would say it would be most beneficial for you if you would read over the passage, we're going to be studying uh, the upcoming week several times during the week. I think it's going to be a lot more beneficial for you to have read the passage and thought about it some, whether or not you actually write anything down for it or, or whatever, before you come in, uh, so that the first time you're being exposed to it is not when we sit down here on a, on a Wednesday morning. Uh, ideally, reading it in multiple translations would be really helpful. And uh, we're going to talk about that in a little bit uh, in terms of why that's helpful. So, but if you go um, somewhere like BibleGateway.com, can you all read that? That's way up high. BibleGateway.com. Um, that'll give you multiple translations that you can read from. 
So to maximize our time, we'll normally try to start uh, promptly. I didn't start promptly last night or this morning. So moving forward, we'll try to start uh, promptly. So 9.30, we'll start. I think most of the time, Cheryl will start. We'll talk a little bit about what you guys interacted on the previous week or have been thinking about and pray, and then we'll uh, jump into the teaching. And I generally won't take questions as we're going through the study, but it's not because I don't like you. Uh, it's just because of the time constraints. I already have a hard enough time keeping it short enough. Uh, and so as soon as we start asking questions, I will want to answer them, and then there will be no chance that we actually get through any of the material. Uh, and a couple reminders. So this is new for this, uh, for this fall, a study guide provided free of charge to you. You're welcome. Uh, pages two to four have just some background material on the book of Colossians. Uh, we're not, we're going to talk a little bit about some of that as we go in the first verses today, but we're not going to talk uh, a ton about, we're not going to read through all this for you. Uh, page four has the study schedule. Uh, so we, it'll, we go uh, up until, we're scheduled to go up until the second, um, the second week of December. Uh, so we have, it's a total of 12 weeks, but we only actually meet nine times. Uh, there are three off weeks. One is Thanksgiving, one I'm away at a conference, and one I just am going to need a break in the middle of the study. Uh, so it's helpful for me to be able to catch up on, on things I'm behind on. And um, so if things change, I'll try to communicate with that with you uh, really quickly. And, uh, but unless there's weather incidents or, or anything like that, uh, we should, this should be our schedule. Oh, and also on page 25, uh, which is at the very, very back, there's a list of resources. Um, this is like my, my favorite thing to do in the world is tell you all the books you should have. Um, and uh, so this is, if you want to do more study on the book of Colossians yourself, if you want to do more reading, if you want to be reading uh, as, as we're going through the book, if you want to be reading along in a commentary or something like that, just to help your own study, uh, these are good ones on page 25 here to, to start with. Um, the, uh, the basic ones are good ones to start with. The, more, the further down the page you get, the more challenging the commentary becomes. Uh, and uh, they're, they're all good, but I would start with the, the basic ones uh, are, are good ones to start with. And uh, remember that the goal of this study is not just that we would learn the book of Colossians. So I, I hope you walk away from this in December knowing kind of a broad outline of Colossians, understanding what the book's about and how pieces fit together and, and what the book is teaching. But the goal beyond that is that uh, we would be changed by the word of God. Right? We, don't, we don't just want to think differently. We want to become more like Jesus as we read the Word. And we think that the Word of God as, as His inspired revelation to us is what the Holy Spirit uses to transform us to become more like Christ. And so we don't only want, particularly as you're in your discussion groups, we don't only want the conversation to be about what do you think this means? Those are good questions, but we want to be thinking more specifically about how does this truth from Scripture come to intersect with my life and actually change 
who I am, uh, what I worship, what I think, what I do on a day-to-day basis. And then we also don't want this to stop here. I I want you to be thinking about who you could read the book of Colossians with, either after we're done or maybe even before we're, we're done. Who could you say, hey, could we sit down and read through the book of Colossians together? This is one of the I think the simplest but also most important ways for us to be discipling one another is just to sit down and read the Bible together. You don't need to have a a degree in in theology or anything like that to be able to disciple somebody. You just need to be willing to sit down and, and interact with them around the Word of God. Because as you disciple somebody, you're not the authority, the Bible's the authority. So you don't have to have the answers because the Bible has the answers. And you can sit there and say, let's look at what the Bible has to say. So I would encourage you to be thinking, who could you be reading the book of Colossians or any book of the Bible with? Um, so just something to be thinking about as we go. And then resources uh, for the study, any recommendations that I have, uh, audio, and I am doing video for this study, not my face, uh, don't worry, but I'm, I'm recording this. Uh, it's going to be posted every week on our website, so it'll be at riverstone.church forward slash Bible study. That's a forward slash, not a backslash. I just learned that this morning. All right, so if you go on to page five in your study guide, you'll see an outline of Colossians that's not filled in. Um, and, but this is basically how uh, the book kind of breaks down paragraph by paragraph. So when we study a book of the Bible, one of the things that we uh, want to do as we go is try to see how all the pieces fit together. Right? The Bible, books of the Bible are not just random collections of spiritual sayings. Uh, they're uh, books that were written by real people for real people uh, in history, and they, they fit together in certain ways. And so, uh, particularly with a letter, there's a logic. As Paul writes these letters, there's a logic to what he's writing. He's building a case for something. He's making an argument. And so, it's important to see kind of how all those pieces fit together. And so, one of the best ways to do that is to kind of break the, the letter down into paragraphs. And then as we go, be asking the question, Now, how does what Paul says in this paragraph fit with what came before it, and how is it going to fit with what comes after it? And then as you do that, seeing how all of them kind of fit together to to form one uh, letter. So I haven't uh, actually filled anything in yet. We're going to do that as we go. Um, So, But also, my outline is not the inspired, authoritative outline of, of Colossians. This is as I read, thinking, this is how I think it fits together best. If you read any commentaries, you'll see that everybody has a slightly different outline. And that's okay because God didn't inspire outlines. These are just tools for us to be able to better understand the book. So, but like our, our letters or our correspondence, um, biblical letters, Paul's letters in the New Testament follow a basic pattern. There's a greeting or an opening and there's a body, so it's the, what the, the main thing that the letter's about. And then there's a closing, uh, farewell, greetings, uh, and so forth. And so um, this is basically how I have it broken down. Although I will confess to you, uh, this morning I was thinking, I wonder if I, I misplaced something. It's just I was thinking about a couple of verses later in the book. 
I was thinking, I may have misplaced one of the sections and it actually should belong somewhere else. So I'm not going to tell you what that is yet. Um, so when we get there, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll make my full confession. So I may end up giving you a supplementary outline sheet to replace the one that's in your book. You can just staple it in there and uh, pretend that I got it right the first time. Okay. So today we're just focused on this first section in the, in the opening of the letter, the, the Paul's greeting and the thanksgiving that he gives for the Colossians' faith. Now this was uh, part of the normal form of an ancient letter. Uh, unlike our letters where um, we start with dear so-and-so, we just start with the recipient and then we put our name at the end, uh, ancient letters started with the sender's name and then the recipient's name and a greeting, and then often we're followed by a thanksgiving and a prayer, uh, and that wasn't necessarily a Christian thing. The pagans did that too. They would give thanks and offer a prayer to their pagan gods as they, uh, as they wrote these letters. And so Paul and the other apostles as they're writing letters are just using this ancient form of letter writing, just the way that they wrote letters, they just filled it with Christian content. Um, now, we're going to talk a little bit about background uh, in the first couple verses, but I want to show you here, this is the geographical setting, just so you can kind of get an idea of where we're at. So, this is um, part of the, the ancient Near East. Here's, here's Rome, so this is Italy. Uh, Jerusalem would be kind of like down here. You can't see it in the, uh, in the map. This is, uh, this is Greece right there. And this is modern-day Turkey. And so if we zoom in to this area here, Colossae, the city of Colossae, is about 200 kilometers uh, east of the city of Ephesus. Uh, it's on this, uh, this river, uh, the Lycus River, so it's in the Lycus River Valley with these, uh, these two other cities, Laodicea and Hierapolis. Uh, and uh, Laodicea and Hierapolis were bigger um, than Colossae and, uh, and more important. And, uh, and then shortly after this letter is written, sometime in the early 60s uh, AD, um, these cities were destroyed by a massive earthquake. Uh, Laodicea and Hierapolis were rebuilt. Colossae wasn't really rebuilt until the 200s-ish, and, um, and now it's in ruins, and it still hasn't been excavated. So we know where it is, but nobody's actually gone there and dug it up. And so there might be more things that we learn about what the city was like and, and all that kind of stuff if people actually go to excavate it uh, someday. So, but that's where we are. We're in modern-day Turkey, about 200 kilometers inland from the sea along this river in these other, uh, in this Lycus River Valley. Um, and what we're going to learn is that Paul, Paul never had been to Ephesus, he, or uh, he hadn't been to Colossae. He'd been, he was in Ephesus doing ministry, and this guy Epaphras came from Colossae to Ephesus, heard Paul's ministry, was converted, went back to Colossae to preach the gospel, and then the gospel spread from uh, Colossae to Hierapolis and to Laodicea. And so you had this network of churches in the Lycus River Valley, and then 
Epaphras goes back from Colossae either to Ephesus or to Rome. We're not entirely sure because Paul's in prison when he writes this letter. And so he's either in prison in Ephesus or Rome. We don't know which one for sure, and it really doesn't matter. Uh, But we know wherever Paul was imprisoned, Epaphras had gone to see him and brought news of what was happening in in Colossae, and that's going to prompt Paul to write this letter. So let's start now with just the greeting section, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Uh, So when we study a book of the Bible, especially a letter of the Bible, we're asking, well, who wrote it? Letters are easier because they usually say the author's name. Some of the other books of the Bible, doesn't, they don't have the author's name, and so who wrote it doesn't necessarily matter. The most important thing is that they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, but we know Paul wrote this letter. He defines himself here as an apostle, Paul an apostle, and he's an apostle, uh, not because he decided to be, but he's an apostle by the will of God. Uh, He didn't decide that he was going to adopt this title of apostle and start exercising spiritual authority. Remember, Paul was a persecutor of the church. And it was as he was on his way to persecute more Christians that he met Jesus. And then suddenly, when he got to the place where he was supposed to persecute Christians, all the Christians were saying, all we know is that the man who once tried to destroy our faith is now preaching it pretty remarkable. So Paul's writing this letter. He'd been doing ministry in Ephesus, and that had led to this guy Epaphras from Colossae being converted and going back and preaching the gospel in his hometown. So Paul is the author, but then he also says it's Paul and Timothy, our brother. So what's the relationship between Paul and Timothy in writing the letter? Well, Timothy could have been acting as Paul's scribe or secretary. Um, the, the last verse of the letter uh, in uh, 418, Paul says, I write this greeting with my own hand, which would seem to indicate to us that he hadn't actually written with his hand the rest of the letter. And yet, in, in, say, verse 123, Paul says, uh, he's talking about the gospel, and he says, of this gospel, I, Paul, became a minister. And so he's speaking in the first person. But then also in verse 3, just right after this, it's, it's first person plural. We give thanks. And so he kind of goes back and forth between this. And so it seems like he's writing the letter, uh, but, but Timothy is probably acting as his scribe. Uh, and this was a very common practice in the ancient world. Um, but Timothy also may have had a little bit more of a hand in actually composing the letter than just copying down word for word what Paul said. Um, you see, in, in uh, Romans 16.22, you read uh, this guy. Uh, so, beginning of Romans, uh, it's uh, the Apostle Paul to 
the church that is in Rome. And the, the whole letter is just, it's Paul. Paul talking. And then at the very end, you get Romans 16, 22, and there's this line that says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you. You think, wait a minute, I thought Paul wrote the letter. Well, Tertius was Paul's scribe, and so he's actually the one that wrote, put pen on paper to write the book of Romans as Paul was, was dictating it to him. But he's not mentioned in the byline at the beginning, whereas Timothy is here. So it might indicate to us that Timothy's role in composing the letter was significant enough that he could set, be said to be one of the authors. Even if the, throughout the letter, Paul is talking about I, I, Paul, In any event, it really doesn't matter how much one or the other had a role in it. It's inspired, authoritative, uh, and is, uh, is Pauline enough that we can say this is the letter of Paul to the Colossians, even if Timothy had a more significant role in it. Now, so Paul and Timothy write this letter, and the recipients then, uh, they write it to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Um, now, as we go through the study, one of the things I want to try to call out is when there are uh, specific uh, like Bible study tools that can be helpful, not just for as we read this passage, but as we read any passage of Scripture. And one of the most important tools when you're studying the Bible is asking good questions. And so uh, it, it can be really easy to read through the Bible and to just skip over things because you've either read them before or you think, I don't understand that, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip it. But one of, the ways that, one of the best ways for you to learn is to, to ask good questions. So we say, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. And so a good question we could ask here potentially is, was he addressing this to one group or two groups? Are saints and faithful brethren one group? Or are they two different groups that he's writing the letter to? In the book of Philippians, he writes it to the saints who are in Philippians along with the overseers and deacons. So he's writing it to this, this church, but then he's also calling out a specific group within it. So is he doing the same thing here? Well, to answer that question... We probably need to think about the way that Paul uses those terms in other, in other places. And we know from the way that he uses, especially the term saints elsewhere, that that doesn't refer to a special group of Christians. That refers to all Christians. See that especially if you, if you go to 1 Corinthians 1, Paul calls the Corinthians saints. And if he's referring to a special group of, of really holy people that are not all, all Christians. So he calls the Corinthians saints, and then you, you go on, you read the rest of the book, and you find out that the Corinthians are really messed up. They're doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And so Paul, for half of the letter, is rebuking them, and yet he calls them saints. So saints, we'd say, refers to all Christians. All Christians are called saints, or are called holy. And he calls them faithful brethren. And to call his recipients saints and to call them faithful is only possible not because they have done so much to make themselves holy 
or faithful to God, it's because they are in Christ. Because they're in Christ, Paul, who's never met them before, right? so we're going to learn in the beginning of chapter 2, Paul's never been to Colossae. Paul knows that he can call them rightly saints and faithful brethren because they're in Christ. This idea of being in Christ is one of the most important ideas in the New Testament. Paul comes back to it over and over and over again in his letters, and especially in this letter, the idea of being in Christ is really important. Um, the, the doctrine that we would associate with this is, is called union with Christ. And um, that can be a sort of um, nebulous idea, say, oh, I, yeah, I believe in union with Christ or I'm united to Christ. And so one of the concrete ways to understand what this means is to think about marriage, right? Uh, when, when you get married, uh, all of the, the things that had individually been yours now become shared property because you've been united together in this covenant. Uh, and you still are individual people, but in the eyes of the law, all that is yours belongs to, to, to both of you. And so uh, it's as if You have Jesus, who has only assets, and then you have the, the Colossians, or us, who bring only liabilities, but unite them together, and Jesus takes all of our liabilities, all of our sin, all of the wickedness and punishment, and we receive all of his assets, his righteousness, his holiness. So because we're united to him, because we're in him, everything that's his gets counted to us, even though we don't deserve it. We give him our debts and he takes, or, and uh, we get his, his righteousness, his holiness, his perfection. And so... We can be called saints and faithful brethren, not because we've done anything special, but because we're in Him. And we get into Him by faith. And uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, who was probably the greatest preacher of the 20th century, uh, once said it this way. Um, he said, talking to people about uh, being a Christian he always knew if they didn't get it when they started talking about, but I know I'm, I'm not good enough yet. And he said, if, if somebody said, I don't feel that I'm good enough, he says, at once I know that they're still thinking in terms of themselves and their idea still is that they have to make themselves good enough to be a Christian. It sounds very modest, but it's a lie of the devil and it is a denial of the faith. You will never be good enough. Nobody has ever been good enough. The essence of Christian salvation is to say that he is good enough and that I am in him. So that's, 
That's what this phrase, in Christ, is communicating. It's going to be really important in this letter, so we're going to keep coming back to it as we go. So, uh, and, and there's so much more I could say about it. Uh, on your question sheet, I think I give you a bunch of recommendations for, for books. A couple of them are pretty short, just on this idea of union with Christ. I think it's uh, really important to recommend you pick one of those up and work through it at some point. So, Paul and Timothy write this letter to the Colossians. Now, interestingly, he, he, he doesn't say to the church in Colossae, he says to the saints and faithful brethren in Colossae, that may be an indication that there was actually more than one church in Colossae that he was writing to. So he's writing to all of the Christians there, but there may be more than one church. And you go to chapter 4 and you maybe see a hint at this where Paul says, uh, greet Nympha and the church in her house. So that there's this specific church in this, that's being hosted in this woman's house maybe that is distinct from some of the other churches in Colossae. So it wasn't that there was this big mega church in Colossae. It's probably a series of house churches. And Paul was writing this letter to, to all of them. But why is Paul writing this letter? And that question is, is hard to answer. And it's hard to answer for, for a lot of the letters of the New Testament because when you read a letter of the New Testament, it's like listening to one end of a phone conversation. You see what Paul is saying, but you don't see what prompted him to write it or any response that comes from it. And so we have to piece together from evidence either within the book or, or in other books what was going on in Colossae that led Paul to write this letter because he was, he was prompted to write this letter for, for some reason. It probably was not just because he sat down and said, you know who I haven't talked to in a long time is the Colossians. I should probably write them a letter. I'm sure Paul was a nice guy and he would think that way, but there seems to be something specific that's on Paul's mind here that he wants to remind them of. And one of the hard things is we just, we, we don't know, and there's lots of disagreement on exactly what the issue was that Paul was writing about. There appears to be some kind of false teaching or some kind of pressure being exerted on the, in the Colossians and their newfound faith uh, and as we go through the book, we'll see kind of bits and pieces of those things that maybe the Colossians were hearing. Some of it sounds uh, pagan. Uh, some of it sounds uh, sort of Jewish. And so it's led people to have all sorts of guesses as to what it was uh, that the, the Colossians were dealing with. Was it a Jewish mysticism? Was it an early form of, a, of an ancient heresy called Gnosticism? That was a popular idea. Uh, in, the, in the 20th century? Um, what, was it just regular run-of-the-mill Jewish legalism like it was in the book of Galatians? And so there's all sorts of different ideas. Was it a, a combination of all of these things? Maybe. Uh, I, I tend to think that maybe the simplest idea is they're facing pressure from lots of different cultural sources, some of them pagan, some of them Jewish. And so Paul's writing to respond just to the the... The, the, the false ideas that they're going to be confronted with and are being confronted with in their everyday life as they interact with their neighbors. Um, now, if Colossae ever gets excavated, we might discover more about what was going on there at the time and may have a better idea, but we don't know, so we're just trying to kind of piece it together. 
So Paul writes this letter to, to help encourage them in their faith and to remind them of the sufficiency of Christ because whatever it was that was pressuring them, ultimately uh, the issue was it was questioning the sufficiency of Christ and his work. On page four of your study guide, uh, there's a, I have a quote from a guy named Douglas Moo who wrote a commentary on, on uh, Colossians and Philemon, and he said this. He said, whatever it is that we, we uh, theorize about what this false teaching or pressure was, the essence of the false teaching is this. It's not according to Christ. That's the problem. Whatever it was that it was teaching, it was not according to Christ, and that's the problem that Paul has with it. He wants the Colossians to stay true to Christ and remember that Christ is sufficient. And so uh, the sufficiency of Christ is going to uh, be a, a prominent theme throughout the book. Now, as we move on to verses 3 to 8, verses 3 to 8 is one sentence in Greek. In the New American Standard Bible, it's also one sentence in English, which is fine for Greek, not as fine for English. So the translation is fine, but it just is very difficult to read and understand in English. And so one of the things that you can do, particularly for passages like this, as you seek to understand how the various pieces uh, pieces kind of fit together, is to do a paraphrase of the passage. So try to state in your own words or in, the, in using the words of the passage what Paul is saying and then see how the various pieces uh, fit together. I did that, so I gave you my version of a paraphrase on uh, this sheet, which hopefully you're able to pick up. If you didn't, it's over here on the table. And uh, this is something that I did just to try to help myself understand the passage, to see all, all the pieces fit together, especially as you get down to where he says, just as, uh, even as, just as. And these clauses just build up on each other, and it becomes sort of overwhelming. Uh, and so paraphrasing it can be really helpful. And, it, and actually doing that forces you to think through, uh, well, wait a minute, does he mean this or does he mean this? Or how does this piece fit with this piece? And it forces you to actually do interpretation as you are thinking through that. That's another tool to use. So he starts this thanksgiving, and this again is common for ancient letters. He says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now, now right off the bat, there's a, there's a question. Um, this word always actually could fit either with we give thanks or it can fit like it does here with praying always or praying for you uh, in in greek it can go either way and so when you translate it you have to pick one or the other and um, now you may say well i i don't know that because i don't speak greek but if you read multiple translations you'll see some translations do it this way some translations say, we always give thanks for you. So the always can, can either be uh, translated as, uh, we give thanks and we always pray for you, which is what the New American Standard assumes. Or it could mean, we always give thanks 
when we pray for you. And that's what most other English translations go with, and I think that's probably right. I think Paul's saying, uh, whenever we pray for you, we always give thanks for you. Now, if you read it in a couple different translations, it's not necessarily going to give you the right answer, or it's not going to tell you which one that it is, but it'll point out to you there's a translation issue here. There's, there's, a, there's a grammatical issue here that maybe I need to ask a question about. Which one makes more sense? Uh, re- a really good uh, resource in that as well is called the Net Bible. Uh, I think if you go to... You can't see that. If you go to net.bible.org, the Net Bible uh, is, is a... A relatively new English translation, which is what the NET stands for, New English Translation, but it includes like 60,000 translation notes. And so, if nothing else, just it, it will help you as you go through the passage, it will point out to you where there are questions about how something should be translated and why they picked what they picked. Some of them are more helpful than others, uh, but it's another tool for you to use to kind of get access to some of, those, some of those grammatical issues. So Paul says, whenever we pray for you, we always give thanks for you. Uh, what's convicting to me about this is that Paul was praying diligently for the Colossians. He says the same thing in verse 9, even though he'd never met them. I mean, I have a hard enough time praying for people that I know people that I've met. Praying for people that I've never met is not usually high on my priority list. And so that's convicting to me. But he says, we always give thanks for you when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. So again, here we we stop and we say, okay, so so how does... uh, this phrase, since we heard of your faith in Christ and your love for all the saints, how does, how does this phrase relate to what he just said that came before it? What does that since communicate, that conjunction? Well, it could mean one of two things. It could describe time. So Paul would be saying, we give thanks to God, praying always for you, Uh, since we heard, or uh, ever since the time that we heard of your faith in Christ. Or it could describe cause. That is, we have been giving thanks because we heard of your faith and of your love. And uh, so the New American Standard translation leaves it kind of ambiguous. It could go either way. If you read the NIV or the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, they would take it as cause, and so they'll translate that, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And I think that's probably right. Um, I think uh, Paul is saying, I'm giving thanks for you whenever I pray for you because I heard about your faith in Christ and the love that you have for all the saints. And notice there's these, these two axes that Paul is referring to. You have faith in Christ, which is the vertical axis, 
right, our relationship to God. And then you also have love for all the saints, which is the horizontal axis. It's the way that our faith works out in practice among other people. Paul's saying, I, I give thanks to God both for this relationship that you have with him now through Christ by faith and the way that that's evidenced outwardly in your love for each other. In fact, your love for all the saints is all of God's people. Again, also convicting. Uh, he says, your love for all the saints. If he left the word all out, I might feel better. But because he said all the saints, then I think, mm, do I really love all of God's people? Not the way I should. But these things are, are tied together, this faith and love. And in verse 5, he tells us why. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So one of the reasons, one of the main reasons that the, the vertical faith and the horizontal love is, uh, uh, one of the reasons that they're tied together is because they both spring from the same source. That's hope, right? Because of hope, uh, your faith and your love exist. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Well, what's, what's that hope? Well, if we, we use our context, we, we see it's uh, of this hope you previously heard in the word of truth, that is the gospel. So that hope is what we hear about in the gospel. And in fact, later, we're going to hear in, uh, in verse 23 uh, that the hope is the gospel. And, and then in verse 27, Paul says that it's Christ in you that is the hope of glory. And so Christ himself, who is the gospel, is this great hope that we have. Beginning of 1 Timothy uh, 1, Paul talks about Jesus Christ who is our hope. So because of the hope of the gospel, this eager, confident expectation of the promises of the gospel in Christ, we have faith in Christ and love for all the saints. Now, that's encouraging to me uh, because left to myself, I wouldn't believe the gospel and I certainly wouldn't love all the saints. But Paul says that it's, that it's the hope of the gospel that actually produces faith in Christ and love for the saints within us. And the implication of that is that if I'm struggling with my faith in Christ, the answer is not simply for me to try harder to believe. And if I'm struggling with love for all the saints, the answer is not just to try harder to love. Because those things spring from the hope of the gospel, the answer is to press deeper into the hope of the gospel which is going to produce faith and love as its fruits. That doesn't mean that we don't practically seek ways to, to grow in our faith or, or to practically express love, but we don't want to try to fruit staple, right? You don't want to staple the fruit of faith and love onto the tree when the root has not sunk down deep into the gospel and is drawing nutrients from it. So this gospel 
They heard about this hope of the gospel, which has come to you, verse 6. And then these, these three conjunctions are all the same in Greek, it's the same word. Um, and this becomes more, a little bit more confusing, but I, but I, I think the idea as we, as we go is this. Um, the gospel has come to you just as it is in the, in the same way as it came also to all the world. So what it's been doing in the whole world, wherever it goes, it's doing the same thing in you. That is, it's constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's probably used metaphorically to describe this fruitful spiritual harvest that's produced by the gospel wherever it goes. Now, it's interesting that these words uh, echo pretty closely the command that God gives Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so, just as Adam and Eve are commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with physical descendants, so the gospel goes forth and is fruitful and multiplies a new spiritual people, right? People who are in Christ. Wherever it goes, people are coming to Christ and moving from death to life. Even as, that is in the same way as it's been doing in you also. It's been bearing fruit and increasing among the Colossians as well. Ever since the day you heard of it, and understood the grace of God in truth. I love this phrase. This is the point where the, the gospel took root among the Colossians. Uh, it describes their conversion experience. Um, that, uh, that when the gospel came to them, they truly understood the grace of God. And this um, is, I think, informative to us for the way that we talk about our own testimonies. We have a tendency when we talk about our own testimony of faith in Christ um, many times to use phrases like, I asked Jesus into my heart or I decided to follow Jesus. And those are fine. There's, there's nothing specially wrong with them. But this is a reminder that uh, a couple things. One, the gospel is about God's grace towards us in Christ not about what we do for him or what we decide for him, and that our conversion is more than a transactional decision. It's more than praying a prayer or saying the right words or walking forward or raising your hand or asking Jesus into your heart. It's about a change that God works in you, opening your eyes to understand the glorious gospel of grace. This idea of understanding, and this word understand is literally the word knowing. So knowing the grace of God in truth. The idea of knowing is going to be important in the rest of the book. It's possible that some of the opponents of the Colossians were facing these challenges. Uh, and, uh, and, and like I said before, one of the challenges is they're saying Christ is not sufficient. What you actually need is some additional spiritual knowledge that will then make you perfect. Christ is great, but you need to move on. There's more, there's more knowledge for you. And for Paul to say that the Colossians had understood the grace of God 
in truth is not to say that they knew everything and that they had nothing left to learn, but rather that they recognized that the gospel is true, and in the gospel they had everything that they needed. They had everything that they needed to know. Even if they didn't know it yet, they knew where they could find it. It was in Christ in the gospel. So they have Christ, and Christ is sufficient. And one of the questions you're going to talk about, hopefully, is, is uh, you know, how, how you can use a phrase like this to describe your own conversion. When did you come to truly understand the grace of God? When did you come to understand who Christ was and what he had done for you and offered you as a free gift? Maybe you need to think, have I truly come to understand the grace of God? And then verses 7 and 8, he introduces Epaphras. Just as, that is, just as you learned the gospel. So uh, I think the idea here is not... um, quite the same as with these two, uh, just as or even as before, I think the idea is more uh, like um, it was exactly in this way that you learned the gospel from Epaphras, or uh, this, is, this happened when you learned the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bond servant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. Like I said before, Epaphras is this Colossian guy who was converted and preached the gospel in Colossae, and he appears, based on this verse, to be the guy who planted the churches there. And he was teaching this very gospel that Paul is talking about. There's not another one that Paul is saying. He's sort of signing off on what Epaphras has said already. Saying All this that you learned from Epaphras is exactly the same as what I taught him. It's exactly the same as what I'm teaching. He's right. Right, he's further uh, commended. He's our beloved fellow bondservant. He's a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, so you can trust him in what he said. In verse 8, he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Now, this would indicate to us that Epaphras is back with Paul. He's informed us. means he's come back and he's told us about this. He's told us about the way that the gospel has taken root in you and produce this faith and love by the power of the Spirit. So based on all of this that Paul is giving thanks to God for, then he's going to move on in the next several verses and pray for the Colossians. And we're going to cover that uh, next week.